zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen, and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing High Risk, released May 1st, 1981. Mayday! It was written and directed by Stuart Raffle, with additional Spanish dialogue, written by Fernando Celis, and released by American Cinema Productions. Raffle was once hired to work on a documentary interviewing drug smugglers in Spanish prisons and later found out that the film's financiers were drug dealers who were literally looking for tips on smuggling hashish out of Morocco. (laughs) That's fantastic. (laughs) Starting from there, Raffle began composing a story based loosely on articles from Soldier of Fortune magazine until he was approached by a producer who enjoyed some of Raffle's earlier work and had money for a film but needed to start production in three weeks' time. We need to go to Columbia. Yeah. <laughs> I have this shipment. It's critical we get this right. According to Lindsay Wagner, the script started as a loose framework and the cast were given room to develop their characters and infuse the scenes with their own sense of humor. And I feel like that actually comes across pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. I could have used a little more structure. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> and James Brolin with zero sense of humor. Yeah. He does have a couple like glances that are kind of comedic, but yeah. Though the film is set mostly in Colombia, it was shot in Mexico. One of their locations was a tiny village near the Nicaraguan border. And when Lindsay Wagner, the former star of the Bionic Woman, stepped out of her car on set, everyone in the town was calling her Mujer Bionica. And she didn't even realize they had televisions here to recognize her from. Mm. But then after that, she noticed there's little antennas sticking off of all the buildings. Yeah. Oh, they have that show. Unfortunately for the film, American Cinema Productions, who has previously distributed Fade to Black, The Octagon, and Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen, filed for bankruptcy just as the film was hitting theaters in the summer of 81, and as a result, it was not seen by many, but it landed director Raffle the job of helming Ice Pirates in 84. Ice Pirates. So we're going to get there later. That sounds great. Yeah. Did you say Ice Pirates? Yeah. Okay. What did you think I said? Nice pirates. I couldn't because nice we were talking at the same time, and I thought maybe you said heist pirates, and I wanted to make sure that heist pirates. What? <laughs> it's a little redundant, I think. <laughs> pirates are always uh, heisting. Copyright uh, yeah, twenty twenty one. The thief robbers. <laughs> I just wrote a movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I see your point. Yeah. I would like to again reiterate Jesse's copyright of the heist pirates. Oh, not the thief robbers? You don't give a shit about that? No. Thanks. Spent seconds coming up with that. Come on, a sea heist. It just sounds great. That's what pirates do. That's all they do. (laughs) It's what you do. You're nothing but a damned radio with doors. (laughs) We open on a rainy street at night just outside of Los Angeles. A radio broadcast describes a lackluster economy, a wash with inflation, and rapidly increasing unemployment numbers. We follow the headlights of a passing truck when suddenly, it appears to be daytime, (laughs) we flash forward like four hours all of a sudden, and uh, we see in profile James Brolin as our lead character Stone driving his truck. He pulls up outside a diner and honks his horn twice when a pair of men, Tony, played by Chick Venera, 
and Rockney, played by Cleavon Little, exit the restaurant carrying overstuffed duffel bags. Rockney's girlfriend follows them out with a fishing rod, and he kisses her goodbye. They skid up to the home of a fourth man, Dan, played by Bruce Davison, but looking very Harry Anderson in mm-hmm. this film. His wife needles him to stay in close contact while he's on his boys' trip. As we see the men pull onto the 101, Stone reminds them to take their malaria medications, implying they're headed a bit further than your average fishing trip. In the opening titles, we feature James Coburn's name in a big box, which is a weird thing that agents used to fight for, but that you don't really see anymore. It's like, oh, he's in a box. He's more important. We can pay you less now. We put you in a box. (laughs) The guys joke about how little Spanish they know and how they will talk their way out of trouble if they get caught. Sounds like a heist is underway. We see Stone's truck driving down a dirt road in the middle of nowhere. They park and wait for a contact to arrive. After some impatience, a second truck pulls up. A man with two dogs steps out of the car, but Stone crosses to speak with the man still sitting in the second car, an arms dealer named Clint, played by Ernest Borgnine. Before opening his vehicle to show off his arsenal, Clint has a question for the boys. Hey, you boys aren't going to be doing anything to hurt any animals now, are you? Oh, no, sir. It's like, does that mean he knew for sure they were going to kill people with them? I think he's fine with them killing people. Yeah. But he's just an animal rights guy. Yeah. Okay. Also, uh, I believe that they are lying. (laughs) I don't know. Because when we get to the scene, I fully intended for them to be sending some animal to its death. Maybe. The whole car is full of handguns, rifles, automatic weapons, Israeli machine guns. Suddenly, Stone's accomplices appear confused. You said we were going to need a couple of pistols for snakes. This wasn't a deal. We're going to be carrying a lot of stuff. Well, why would you admit that you were going to kill snakes right in front of the guy who you just promised you wouldn't hurt any animals? (laughs) And and why is he then not caring? Yeah. (laughs) He brings up the possibility of bandits for apparently the first time. What if we run into some bandits or something? Bandits? Yeah. There's bandits? Bandits, man, there's enough stuff here for a war. Tony is disturbed enough by this last-minute change and tries to walk away from the job. All three passengers decide to quit with him until Stone reminds them what he has personally given up in the name of this operation. He also reminds them that there's a million dollars waiting on the other side of it. I feel like I would have appreciated, like one or two scenes prior to them starting this heist just to sort of like establish that they're just normal dudes that that don't know what they're doing instead of having like a lot of this dialogue feels a little clunky to me yeah um and so i just i just feel like it would have been a little bit more interesting to be like wait you're just normal dudes going about your normal day but you you're not very well off and then all of a sudden you're in this heist you're like what the heck is happening yeah why were they all so gung-ho about flying to another country and doing this in the first place like it doesn't seem like they've talked about it much but i would have liked to hear maybe that conversation like what convinced them to do this and how much do they actually know going into this yeah something to set this apart from dogs of war where it's like these people are professionals that know exactly what they're doing every step of the way well it seems like stone We'll come. We'll come to to realize anyway that Stone has the most information about what's right. going on. But he's also not like a professional mercenary. No. no but, but what did he t- what did he tell these guys? Yeah, exactly. That that that's that's what we don't know. Yeah. He, he All must- we know is the stuff he left out as we figure it out. He tells his friends that in this economy they have no hopes for retirement unless they seize this windfall. It reminds me a lot of the beginning of How to Beat the High Cost of Living especially with all the inflation talk. Yeah. But it's all these people who 
could make a living, but they just choose not to. So they found a way to just steal a bunch of money so they can just live off of that. Well, I mean, I think that there's a like news dialogue over the top of the the opening. Yeah, it's just talking about how inflation is bad. And, yeah, but unemployment is rampant. So right. it's not like necessarily they're inability to make money and get a job it's the the economy is doing it to them right but when he's telling them right now we should go for this million dollars each he's telling them what do you want to do work in an office for the rest of your life like that's the alternative that that's an option right now yeah and if that were the option then yeah i would do that rather than getting shot at by bandits tony says he'd rather be broke than dead and stone pretends that they can quit anytime they want even though they're trying to quit right now and he's putting up a fight we hard cut to a deafening weapons test. Jesus Christ. Hold it. Clint gives them some pointers for accuracy and then flips Rockney's machine gun to fully automatic. The boys take turns cutting cactuses and outhouses in half with the guns. Rockney asks Clint if he can take a picture of them with the cool guns. And he agrees to, but his expertise with shooting ends with guns. <laughs> and he has no idea how to shoot a photograph. You, you point and shoot. It's the same principle. Yeah. Press this down here. Just push it in. Just, just slide it. In. Just, just push that know. bottom in. Okay. I was waiting for this to come back the entire film. Like, I'm like... So the oh, picture didn't work out this or something? Is, well, no. Well, either that or this is evidence yeah. about what you did oh, yeah. and who you are. And and this is not a good idea. It's like, it's like how do we how the, do high the high cost of living when they're sitting in the kitchen recording the entire, entire plan? plan. <laughs> Before taking the picture, Clint asks what cause they're serving on this mission. And Stone leaves it at inflation. I think it's funny because Clint's reaction to that was used to be causes like that, that he used to sell guns for causes. Right. And now, yeah, there used now to be revolutionaries inflation. that had like <laughs> philosophies and but they're just like, no, we just want money. But he doesn't care one way or another. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> On their flight south, they flip through a set of photos they have of their target, including close up shots of the safe they intend to hit. Dan is confused how someone could get so close with the combination and not make the score themselves. I can't figure out why he didn't rip him off himself if he had the combination. No balls. They killed his brother down there. In the plane's cabin, the pilots discuss how they're being paid for this mission. Turns out they don't get paid until the heist is complete. For now, they get a bottle of tequila and enough gas to fly back and forth over the border. The pilot gives us a little more backstory by explaining to the co-pilot that Stone is a cameraman who worked on a documentary about cocaine deals and then developed a plan to steal this big score. So he's kind of playing the Stuart Raffle role because he worked on this documentary that informed the story dan asks stone why he's so sure the pilots will come back for them and stone confirms that the pilots will be paid on delivery two hundred thousand dollars stone lays a map across a table and talks his team through the plan it sounds like they're parachuting into the site landing near the hacienda where they'll make the score and then hiking over a mountain to an arranged pickup near some old mines as a backup plan if they get split up Dan explains, uh, Follow any of the rivers till they get to the falls. A pilot lets them know they're 20 minutes from the jump. Rockney is carrying a Bichon for the jump, and when he asks where it came from, the pilot admits to taking it from an old lady in the park. So he just dognapped this thing. As they prepare to jump, the pilots do a fake disembarking announcement on the PA. <laughs> disembarking. On <laughs> <laughs> target. Looks like a nice open area to the left. It's a lovely temperature outside. 
hope that you enjoyed flying Adios Airlines. I hope that we can further fulfill your future traveling needs. Adios. So was part of the deal for them to bring this dog? Yeah, I think they intended to. He swiped the dog intentionally. Apparently, they they got one of the pilots to steal the dog for them. Yeah. So. Oh. Because that's the guy who said that he stole it from an old lady, but I mean, oh, it must it have just been a part of the plan. Okay, yeah, because so they like, didn't have it with them when they. Right, that's true. They wasn't in the truck, so yeah. he's like, "Okay, meet us here at this time and with bring a, a dog. dog." Yeah, any dog is fine. No, I think it had to be small and delicious. <laughs> <laughs> you think, you think they're, uh, the taste matters? I'll eat any dog. <laughs> the four men make their jumps in broad daylight, which would not be my first choice. Well, neither would the choice of parachute that they are using. Oh, yeah. Of bright rainbow colors. Yeah, and they're also like hang gliding out, or not hang gliding, but like parasailing out of it. They're mm-hmm. not just going straight down. Rockney looks injured upon landing, but eventually explains the Bashan peed on him, out of fright probably. Dan reminds himself loudly to bend his knees as he comes in for a landing and accidentally discharges his weapon on contact with the ground. Luckily, nobody's hit, but he's retaught how the safety on his gun works. The men and their Bashan begin the long hike to the payday. They're waiting for an upcoming siesta to strike. Is that racist? I don't know. I feel like that's racist. No, it's a thing that happens. I, I don't think that an American would observe the siesta yeah. that was living there, but maybe. It, it just seems like the, the implication is that when it's siesta time, they all go to sleep. <laughs> it's a law. They have to be asleep for three hours. That's like pretending that people would be asleep at nighttime everywhere in America. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's about equivalent to being like, if you're in England, they're going to take tea in the afternoon. Like, right. it's not, it's we, not everyone's going to do it. Yeah, not and I wouldn't it factor it into my time. heist. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to wait for the third sugar cube. <laughs> wait about an hour and then move on down. Now, why don't we wait until it's dark? Less security now. Stone watches the house with binoculars while Tony quizzes the team on whether or not they could kill a man. The consensus seems to be that none of them has ever even considered it. The men begin their approach on the building when the time is right. They pass a multitude of sleeping guards and field workers. <laughs> so why why is it, this why is are the, there guards at all yeah, if they're going to sleep when everyone else is sleeping? It seems like this is the time that you need the most security yeah. when everyone else is asleep. <laughs> Suddenly a guard dog barks loudly at them apparently having set his clock wrong and not <laughs> sleeping for this portion of the day yeah and and not waking anybody <laughs> yeah nobody nobody reacts to it at to all other than the people breaking in a guard dog barking like the point of if they yeah. bark yeah. you sh- you're supposed to take note <laughs> they're just like all those guards are sitting there like fucking dog it's siesta piece of shit <laughs> they scale a wall and notice a pair of doberman pinchers in the central courtyard Tony lowers their stolen Bashan into the yard where it is quickly cornered by the Doberman pinchers and then it leads them around a corner as a distraction. I was worried that it was just going to get torn to shreds here. That, that's, that's like, why you picked the delicious dog. Yeah. But it seems like they're friendly to each other. Which is totally like, I get, so I have the problem with this movie in the sense that it tries to play itself as a comedy. Right. And I mean, while it does have moments that are funny, Overall, it has many moments that are just like terrifying and or horrifying sad. and sad. Uh, and when I was like, my note is, oh God, is that why they brought the dog? That's literally my note. 
was yeah. that I was I was full expecting to watch this dog just get eviscerated yeah. by a pair of Doberman Finchers. And I don't think they would have cared if that had happened. I yeah. think the point was just literally, we just need a dog that will distract other dogs while we mm-hmm. get stuff done. The men jump down into the courtyard and make their way to the house. Stone rounds a corner and runs headfirst into a parrot on a branch that lets out a piercing screech right in his face. <laughs> they move inside the building through a kitchen where they find a gutted animal hanging from the ceiling and bleeding out. I'm assuming this is being prepared for some kind of meal. Or there's a serial killer that lives here, too. <laughs> but again, nobody paid any attention to the guard parrot. Nope. nope. <laughs> what was the point of shelling out all that money? Yeah, even Syndrome had the right idea with his guard parrots and the Incredibles. Or Charles Bronson in Cabo Blanco. You just got to say that to the bird and it'll tell you the combination of the safe. They sneak past the only room with conscious people, distracted from the burglars by a game of pool. As they approach the stairs, Stone guides his team under them as a woman in a swimsuit comes down the steps and then heads out the door to the pool. (laughs) Sorry, it was like two people distracted by pools. (laughs) Yeah, two different pools, but both very fun and very distracting. They're going around this place like uh, it, it reminds me of like playing Goldeneye or Perfect Dark. In that they're just like hugging the walls, and if a person walks by them, they they, they don't just wait it out. Yeah, they 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 can walk right as long as they don't ever move their heads or swivel their heads slightly <laughs> to see that there's a whole group of yeah. people standing there. They won't see them. It gets even more blatant later. When the coast is clear, Stone leads the men directly to the room with a safe in it, where they get to work cracking it. They quickly discover that the safe combination has been changed. Tony insists they make a run for it now. But Stone won't leave without the money at this point, not after they've come so close. Tony and Dan are halfway out the door, but Rockney is on board with Stone's new plan. Grab the guy who owns the safe and beat the combination out of him. Stone and Tony quickly locate the big man, Serrano, played by James Coburn, just as he's wrapping up a business deal with a local general. Amazingly, the general doesn't notice them in an enormous mirror on the wall and leaves without incident. Stone and Tony follow Serrano into a bedroom, where they find steam coming out of an attached bathroom, but Stone spots Serrano out on the patio across the way and sneaks toward him. Tony catches a girl in a towel as she steps out of the steaming bathroom and puts his hand over her mouth. When Serrano is finally alone, Stone approaches him from behind and cocks his gun right beside Serrano's head to get his attention. I do for you, we're going downstairs, downstairs. He's led fairly willingly to his own safe. Once in the room with the team, Rockney and Dan take up a good cop, bad cop routine, but Serrano offers to open the safe himself and eventually to give Stone the numbers. I feel like when he got home at the end of this day, he must have been like, why did I do that? Yeah. That was dumb. They didn't have any way into my safe. Yeah, but they might have just shot him and he and wanted to live. And then just flown home? <laughs> I guess. I, I, I thought for sure that this was a like a trick combination yeah like, this is that, the combination when you dial that, this it's going to bring the general back yeah or sound a some kind of an alarm right one left two three so the combination was one two three something an idiot puts on his luggage <laughs> Safe pops right open, and it's packed to the gills with cash and drugs. Serrano tells them it amounts to about $5 million, but at the same time lets them know that they will make it at best five miles from this house before they're captured. 
Serrano and his still-wrapped-in-a-towel lady friend are bound to chairs and gagged. I looked online, and a million dollars in $100 bills weighs about 22 pounds. Okay. Uh, so that means there's well over 100 pounds to be split amongst all four of these guys. But well, They do have three backpacks. Yeah, between the four of them, three backpacks. So they're carrying like 33 pounds each. Yeah. That seems doable. If it's split evenly. I'm, I'm just... For, for what's going to be going on yeah. for the rest of this movie. The, the I mean, they do address the weight a little bit later. Yeah. The team emerges from the house having packed their bags full of winnings. Outside the compound, they encounter one of Serrano's men, who can plainly see that he's outnumbered and begins apologizing in Spanish. They shush him repeatedly, but when he ignores the international sign for shut the fuck up, Stone cracks the guy over the head with the butt of his gun. Unfortunately, he doesn't hit quite the right place or with quite the right strength. And now the man is just screaming in pain. I love this moment. Yeah. This is maybe my favorite moment of the whole film. Because it happens all the time. Well, yeah, everyone just just knocks people out so easily. Yeah. And I'm just like, if that were me and I were trying to hit somebody hard enough to knock them out, I, A, certainly could not do it. And B... If I was being knocked out, I would scream. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, this is this is the most realistic version of that I've ever seen. Yeah. And I think the second hit probably just killed the guy. I don't think he successfully knocked him unconscious. Well, and whenever someone gets knocked out, like no one ever takes into account the fall to the floor. Yeah. It's like they didn't catch themselves. No. They were knocked out. And it's also 100% brain damage. Mm-hmm. But like when we saw in Backroads earlier this year, when Tommy Lee Jones choked the guy out, he was standing behind him to catch him so that he wouldn't fall. Yeah. And he's like specifically like told him not to bite his tongue and he's like giving him tips for being about to be knocked out. It's too late though. The man's screams have drawn the attention of additional guards who open fire immediately. The girl swimming in the pool watches them run by. The team takes fire from all directions. As they run away from the compound, they sneak into a narrow brick corridor and then Stone blasts the door off the far end of the tunnel with a shotgun. They escape into the center of a bullfighting ring, and the bull nearly gets a piece of Dan before they can hop over the fence and back out of the ring. They break away from the property and move along a shallow stream as they are pursued by two jeeps full of armed soldiers. The team encounter some men on horseback in a cornfield and give them some of their cash to buy their horses. The jeeps are hot on their trail, but the horses are able to cross a river where the jeeps stall out. But I think these jeeps would have no trouble getting through this river. Uh, Aren't they designed for this? Yeah, but it, it, it actually looked pretty deep. Maybe. I, I don't know if that engine gets completely submerged. The four men stop to catch their breath at the top of a hillside and celebrate their newfound millionairedom. Far behind them, we see a man watching from behind bushes. This is Hueso. He is the sidekick of a guerrilla general who we will meet later. They all talk about how they'll spend their money, and Rockney thinks that he can solve the whole inflation problem by spending his share in the good old U.S. of A. They hear someone approaching, and all prep their guns, but it's just the Bichon. I hope nobody followed him. <laughs> the next morning, the dog wakes them up with some light barking, and they notice dozens, maybe hundreds, of horsemen on the approach. It's like a whole damn army. The team decides to make a run for it, and the general leading the army toward them opens fire. Racing through another cornfield, Rockney and Tony have their horses shot out from under them, and they are quickly placed under arrest. These are pretty dramatic yeah. horse crashes in the yeah. field, too. It's, yeah, and it's, uh, as they're running, like, on the hills and stuff like that, and these yeah, horses are tumbling down after they fall out from under them, like, it's it's troubling. Yeah. 
Dan and Stone continue without them. On a slanted hillside, Stone's horse is shot out from under him and rolls down the hill. Dan suggests they surrender to at least survive the day as prisoners. You want to quit now? They shot my horse! It wasn't even your horse! It was. He paid for it. True. But he's just taking offense like it was personally like a horse that he picked out and not one that he exchanged something for five minutes ago. We cut back to the bull ring where Serrano is riding a horse alongside the bull and stabbing it with those fluffy spears matadors use. Though I looked it up and the person riding horseback during a bullfight is referred to as a picador, not a matador, and they're usually operating as an assistant to the matador. It seems like cheating to just stab the bull directly from on horseback. According to director Raffle, Coburn was suffering from terrible arthritis at the time and had to be lifted onto and off of the horse. Obviously, whenever we see it in the same shot as a bull, it's a stunt guy in a ridiculous gray wig. In the stands, the woman from the steamy shower gives another spear to Serrano to stick the bull with. As he rides around the ring, it looks like the bull sticks the horse pretty good with its horns up against the side wall. After the match, prisoners Tony and Rockney are presented to Serrano, and he asks them where his money went. They claim not to know. Serrano slashes at Rockney's right ear with one of his spearheads, and then Rockney is led away and punched mercilessly against a wall until Tony begs Serrano to stop. We cut back to Stone and Dan, who are making their way across a rope bridge, a la the end of Temple of Doom. The soldiers shoot at the bridge and tear through the ropes one at a time until they actually destroy it, and Stone and Dan barely catch themselves on the ropes dangling under the bridge. Why are they shooting at the ropes? Instead have... of the people? Instead of the people. What's an easier target to hit? Well, Definitely I, the people. Obviously yeah. the people. Don't you need the same like, square inch of tiny rope yeah. to make it fall. But also, I assume that these guys are chasing them because they want to get the money back? Yeah. Presumably? Yeah. And if why, you destroy the bridge. Why would you destroy the bridge knowing full well that then they will fall to the you know river underneath and be swept away right. with mm-hmm. the cash and like you have to wonder if after the scene they were just like oh yeah that's what would happen if we did that that's a bad plan because exactly what should have happened happened here but like they celebrated the fact yeah. that they successfully ripped the bridge down here's another question doesn't somebody use this bridge isn't this here for a reason uh-huh. why did, like how hard was this bridge to set up I, I, the bridge didn't look like it got a lot of use. No. But still, it just feels like there's a bridge there for a reason. Somebody crosses here. I wanted to draw some parallels between this movie and uh, Romancing the Stone. Okay. Oh, yeah. Because there, there's just like a lot of like, you know, Jeep chases through a cornfield. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this this bridge where people are dangling on vines and ropes. They both shot in very similar locations yeah, in Mexico, and they're, too. Well, and they're both supposed to be taking place in Colombia. Right uh you know military dictators yeah um and drug lords like there's a lot of things that are similar uh in this obviously romancing the stone came much later right a lot of actors in common though because obviously they're gonna crew up with a lot of locals stone sees the water below them and tells dan to let go of the dangling straps of bridge but he's too terrified eventually dan does let go and seconds later, we see Stone hit the water beside him. How did you know we could make it? I didn't. I figured if you'd make it, I'd be okay. Can we talk about 
about the physics of what's happening with this bridge, though? Because once they tore through it, doesn't that mean that the bridge is going to go slamming into the hillsides? But they're dangling over the middle of this gap. I don't think it completely it tore not? in half on the footpath part. Uh, okay. I think yeah. just the just railing the broke off and they were hanging from the railing. Also, I was debating whether or not a packed backpack full of money would float or sink. Yeah. I was like, well, paper paper would probably float. Even if I threw a bundle of bills into a pool, I'm pretty sure it would float. Until it gets waterlogged. Yeah. Um, but then when it shows these backpacks just completely f- bobbing on the surface, yeah. I was like, I don't know if they would be that buoyant. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Also, I th- the joke here obviously is that he's like, oh, I was using you as a guinea pig, and if you didn't survive, I wasn't going to let go. But he's, he's they let go like lost. a half second be- between yeah. each other. Yeah, they were both in the air at the same time. So I think what he meant was, I'm going to try to land on you to soften my blow. <laughs> Is that what he meant? I did not take that <laughs> Mr. meaning. Mr. Burns, try to land of Lenny's carcass. <laughs> the guards lead Rockney and Tony into a jail cell. Rockney holds his ear where Serrano sliced it. Tony offers him a piece of ice to hold against the cut, and Rockney asks where the hell he got ice. What's that? It's a Coke. You want some? Oh, man. Hey. They were going to kill you. So you told them, huh? I told them when I buried the money. What, what money? Listen, they only found your money. They didn't know Stone was carrying mine. Small point of order here. It sounds like, before they got split up, that Tony gave his money to Stone to carry, but Rockney was carrying his own. Mm-hmm. So Serrano's men have already taken that money back. Yeah, they've gotten one-fifth of the money back, potentially. Which is a million dollars. It turns out Tony lied to them about where his share ended up in the hopes that they would be led to the supposed burial place where they might have a better chance of escaping. But Rockney is convinced that they'll just get killed when their captors realize there's no money buried here. I was confused by this. I just assumed that he was lying about burying the money and there was no buried money. There There is is no no buried money. Oh, wait, okay, but then... There was only ever three backpacks of money, right? Correct. There, there are three backpacks of money because Tony's money is in Stone's backpack. Okay. So, okay. So there, so there is no additional money that was missing. There's no extra million dollars that's gone. There's a million dollars of that was in Rockney's backpack that has now been seized. While they argue, a brick slides out of the wall between their cell and the next cell, and suddenly a woman is speaking to them through the open hole. We will learn much later in the film that her name is Ollie, and she's being played by Lindsay Wagner. This scene feels very modern because it's yeah. so funny, and the way that the the shots are framed just feels uh, more modern than what we've seen in the '80s so far. It's it's a very funny scene, but but also that. They don't want to talk to her. Right. They just put the brick back. It's like there's an incredibly beautiful woman next door, and they're just like, I, I don't have time for this. Oh, you're American. Where are you from? California. Why? Why not? Weirdly, she asks Rockney what happened to his ear, even though the slice wound has been turned away from the brick hole in the wall the entire time it's been open. She asks if they have a lawyer and advises them not to trust Roberto Reyes, who will never enter the story moving forward. (laughs) This is an irrelevant point. She warns them that any money they try to keep secret from these men will be taken. On top of that, they'll take any money that their families have back in America. She tells them she's been here herself for five months, and the two Italian guys on the other side of her have been here for three years. 
I wish they've gotten to know each other pretty well by now. Oh, you, you, you guys got any grass? No. Oh, you want to buy some? Who the hell is he? Put the brake. I'll talk to you later. They just push the brick in to not talk to her anymore. I just really love that moment. Like, wait a minute. Why are we talking to this lady? Yeah. Like, yeah. We don't have time for this. Like, it, it seems kind of suspicious. Yeah. Like, I would be kind of like, it's like, I'm not giving this person any more information. Yeah, that's, that's enough. Also, fun fact. Apparently, autocorrect corrected all my uh, all my character names for Ollie to old. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. When they replace the brick, she shouts around the wall to them that without a sense of humor, they're not going to survive this place. We cut back to Stone and Dan by the riverside. Dan is collecting cash off the ground. And unless I'm misunderstanding the shot because it isn't very high resolution, it looks like there's money spread all over the ground for some reason. Yeah. How's it going? Okay. It's about dry. It'll be lighter now. All we got to do is pick it up. So apparently they spread this cash all over the ground to help it dry faster because the money weighed too much wet. I don't know how much that would change the weight, like double it maybe. Yeah, but, I don't know. But I was waiting for a gust of wind to come and just take it all away. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of what I thought was going to happen too. Dan asks Stone if he can break 100 into 250s because he's about to take a shit and he wants more paper to wipe his ass with. Here's a leave. Get out of here. While he craps, Dan thanks Stone for bringing him along on this mission. It's not the money. I mean, all my life, I wanted to do just one thing where I had to put it on the line, you know, and fight the dragon. <laughs> Suddenly Stone has a gun to his head and is quickly disarmed. And by the time Dan finally realizes what's going on around him, the leader of this guerrilla army, Don Mariano, as played by Anthony Quinn, is offering him a few bills to wipe his ass with, and he reluctantly takes them. I... I didn't like this speech from Dan because it seems totally against his character. Yeah, especially since he contradicts it 45 minutes later on the phone. Yeah, he, he has been the the biggest kind of, I don't want to say the complainer. Right. But he has been the one who's... The who, most hesitant. Yeah. Well, and I feel like it goes against the whole point that they set up at the beginning of the film is that they really need this money. Yeah. So what... What do you mean you did this because you wanted an adventure? And it's not about the money? And you left a wife and a child at home? Right. Don Mariano turns back to his men and announces in Spanish that they wipe their asses with leaves and rocks, but these men use $100 bills. Rocks? <laughs> leaves, yeah. Rocks? <laughs> rocks, you know, because they got a little bit of a, a, little bit of a texture a grit, to them. A grit. You, you can I've, get right in there. Are we talking like a smooth rock? Like a, no, no, like no. a you, skipping you, rock? No, you need a rough rock to get in there and get all that stuff. See, I'm still, this is sedimentary at least, right? <laughs> yeah. We're not talking like igneous. No, 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 no. You don't want the rock to have any cleavage and leave parts behind. No, not my rocks. <laughs> I, ideally, you would want to get three seashells. <laughs> How do the three seashells work? The whole ragtag group of guerrilla army soldiers laugh heartily at their general's joke. Way too long, actually. <laughs> like 30 seconds of laughing. Uh, we cut back to the cell where Tony strikes up a conversation with a child in the alley behind the jail. He offers the kid Rockney's watch in exchange for handing him the chain hanging off the back of a tow truck parked in the alley. Just before handing off the chain, the kid requests their shirts and shoes as well. And after some hesitation, they give the kid all of their clothes but their underwear. 
The prison guard shows up with their food and asks where their clothes went before bringing their nudity to his captain's attention. I thought it might have been funny if he's like, Captain, it happened again. (laughs) In the cell's back wall, the tow truck chain is wrapped around the bars of their window. Just as the captain is led to the cell with the naked men, we hear an engine revving in the alley, and the tow truck yanks the entire brick wall off the back of the jail. Not just Tony and Rockney's cell, but also the pot dealer lady next door and the Italian couple in the last cell. Tony and Rockney run through town naked, getting fired on by a whole team of guards. They sneak into a whorehouse to escape the soldiers, hiding in a room with a prostitute and a john until the guards leave. But the prostitute wants to fight them for interrupting her work and six her customer Hercules on them. <laughs> I was going to say a prostitute and a wand. Okay, there you I go. Don't, I that don't. That, that might be racist. No, that's right. <laughs> that's the, the accurate translation. Hercules is a scrawny old man, and Tony tosses the guy into a chair before turning to help Rockney with the unruly prostitute. Unable to talk sense into her, Tony decides to knock her unconscious with a punch to the head. <laughs> this seemed unnecessary. Yeah. Uh, this is what I mean that this movie rides this line between like, oh, I don't, I don't like these guys. Yeah, you, you're going to tie the other guy to a chair gently, but you're going to punch this lady in the head until she's unconscious. That's weird. Tony breaks a lamp and ties up Hercules with the electrical cord while Rockney raids the closet in search of men's clothes but has to settle for a dress because obviously whatever Hercules wore in here isn't going to fit them. He's super skinny, tiny old man. We see Ollie moving through the marketplace as a kid tries repeatedly to sell her things she doesn't want. She eventually crosses paths with Tony and Rockney and they all leave together. Now it is Stone and Dan's turn to play prisoner. They're all tied up on the top of a hill while Don Mariano and his men count the cash. Mariano relays to the prisoners a message from his men that they must have balls to rob Serrano like that. Don Mariano's men all sing a song in Spanish together, but no subtitles bother to translate it for me, and I couldn't figure it out on my own, so apologies. Don Mariano bends over to speak with his prisoners, and for some reason assumes they work with an intelligence agency, probably because they succeeded in stealing this money from Serrano's secured fortress, you're not fooling me i know you are with the cia we're not from the cia you are with the fbi for christ's sake we're on welfare don mariano is very upset here and considers killing them both for the trouble they've caused including leading serrano's men out into these mountains where he and his group have survived for so long they point a gun at each prisoner but at the last minute instead of shooting them ready Don Mariano's second in command, Hueso, farts right in Stone's face. Again, everybody laughs like this is the funniest thing they've ever seen. Stone asks one of Don Mariano's younger men who they even are. We used to be revolutionaries. Now they're just bandits. The kid, apparently named Obedient, sounds pretty disappointed about it. And so they consider him an opportunity for escape and ask him to let them go. Obedient, true to his name, refuses to help since Don Mariano has all the money now anyway. Don Mariano reads to his prisoners from the sports pages. The Indians beat the Yankees (laughs) 7-3. to The Angels too. 
We cut back to Rockney, Tony, and Ollie running through the wilderness when they see a bus and try to flag it down for a ride. As they crest a hill, we get kind of a funny joke here. Rockney, still wearing a dress from the prostitute's closet, says, First man I see him will rip off his clothes. <laughs> Me too. Because Rockney doesn't like wearing a dress, and Ollie desperately wants sex. Technically, they don't need two guys, though, if Rockney only needs the clothes and Ollie only needs everything else. <laughs> mm-hmm. They climb aboard the bus and take their seats. A man moves down the aisle asking for their bus fare, but none of them have any money. Tony offers the man his ring, and the man accepts it as payment after biting it to make sure it's delicious enough. Rockney notices the kid that took all their clothes and his watch is also on the bus. But if you ask me, he didn't steal their stuff. Yeah. He was yeah. paid in their stuff yeah. to escape, and they got what they asked for. In fact, things turned out pretty well, all things considered, for mm -hmm. them. Well, I mean, they gave him the watch, and then he was having troubles, and then he asked for more. Right. So he knew he was kind of, you know, asking, like, he, he was putting them in an awkward position by saying, no, 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 now you got to pay me more. He was... Yeah, it's a bit of a bait and switch, I guess. But they needed what he provided for them, and they didn't need what they gave him. But the kid returns the clothes, but Rockney lets him keep the watch because he did break them out of jail. We cut back to Don Mariano's camp where a pig is being dragged around by one leg at a time and screeching in pain. It's kind of a troublesome scene to watch because it doesn't lead into anything. There's really no reason for this moment. But then suddenly the Bashan shows up again and walks up to Dan on the ground. Dan whispers to the dog for a moment until Don Mariano's second-in-command fires around directly beside Dan's head in the dirt, scaring the dog away. Don Mariano can't even find out why the fuck anybody's shooting until the man reports that the prisoner was having a conversation with the dog. Like he was worried that the yeah. dog was going to help break them out. <laughs> the keys, Milo. Not Bring the me cheese. Mariano accuses white men of caring more about animals than poor people, but then orders his prisoners cut loose before leaving with the money. Stone grabs Obediente to hold him hostage in exchange for their money back. This is all the proof Don Mariano needed to be certain that Stone is with the CIA. He tries to bluff Stone by telling one of his men to shoot Obediente, and when the man follows through on the order, Don Mariano looks shocked. He tells the henchman he was supposed to fart, not shoot the kid. The tone here is so weird. Yeah. yeah. Like this is a, this shot is, a man. And it's not even just it's, it's like the youngest kid in their yeah. group. And the woman like that is the, in their group like just screams like is this her son? Yeah. It's it's very weird that and but I still laugh when he says, "Oh, you're supposed to fart on him." <laughs> <laughs> like it's still really funny on top of being <laughs> horrifically tragic. <laughs> To be fair, though, this is pretty soon after the last fart joke, and I feel like you should spread them out if you're gonna like that. Like literally, that was ten minutes ago. While Don Mariano argues with the shooter, the prisoners escape and roll down the hill. At the bottom, Dan sees Stone got a flesh wound in his side and tears his own shirt in strips to stem the bleeding. Even now, as Dan bandages him, Stone makes plans to follow Don Mariano and get their money back. Dan would rather head straight for the plane. Back with the other half of the team. The bus hits a bump, and Tony realizes that he's fallen asleep on Ollie's shoulder. The bus pulls up to a bar, and the driver tells Tony that they can get a meal and cleaned up. But isn't Tony completely out of money now? They just gave the ring to this guy, and they didn't have any other cash on hand. I assume that Ollie sells some weed? Or she I, has other jewelry. 
I kind of thought that I couldn't remember how much the guy was asking for for tickets to the bus, and maybe the ring was worth pesos. more. What was was the ring was only worth 180? Well, that's what he said it was worth. Okay, to cover the bus fare. Because I thought maybe if the ring was worth more, then he was giving him change by going in and talking to the guy and saying, but maybe not. A couple of tribesmen approached their table to offer to buy Ollie. Ollie lights up a joint and Rockney thinks she's crazy for smoking it out in the open, but nobody seems to care here in Columbia. I mean, this is where the stuff comes from, right? Ollie hands him the joint and Rockney chokes on it because it's way stronger than American weed. We cut back to Stone and Dan arriving at Don Mariano's camp in the middle of the night at their dark siesta. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the one that the one that we have here. Dan knocks out the lone conscious man at the camp and then Stone makes his way toward where the money was hidden. Dan watches from afar as Stone tiptoes around the sleeping men in search of their prize. Even though they're already sleeping, Stone chooses a couple people to knock even further unconscious. <laughs> Including D- uh, Don Marino. Right. I almost said Dan Marino. <laughs> yeah. This movie took uh, a turn. <laughs> one man only pretends to be asleep in the group until Stone gets very close and suddenly everyone is firing on each other. Dan's weapon is in full automatic mode and he mows down a crowd of incoming soldiers as yeah. Stone runs away with the money. Well, and, and Stone shoots the guy who, who grabs his leg. Right. He just blam. Yeah. A lot of people die in this scene. It's really uncomfortable. They cross the river and hopefully keep the money dry this time so they don't have to stop and wait hours on the riverside again. When they finally get to safety, Dan is gagging because of the brutal violence he just engaged in to defend them. We cut to what looks like a mirage in the desert under what the subtitles call quirky music. And Rockney, (laughs) Tony, and Ollie have discovered a totaled plane off a runway. As they approach the craft to look inside, a puma or some shit jumps out of it and runs off into the wilderness. I thought somebody's going to get attacked here. Yeah. They make jokes about this plane being one of the pilots. Yeah. Or the pilot's former plane because it has the same logo on the side. Yeah. And they're like, oh, it must be the same company. Like they're trying to make excuses because they hope that that isn't the plane that they were supposed to leave in. Mm-hmm. So again, drawing more parallels to romancing the stone yeah finding an old abandoned plane yeah and using it for shelter that's right uh uh i had another one uh oh the bus like yeah like you know like crazy like dirt road middle of nowhere bus these are all in macgyver episodes too the next day stone and dan continue walking along the river and dan is losing his marbles he accuses stone of being so obsessed with the mission that he doesn't care what happens to the people around him on either side. He even calls out Soldier of Fortune magazine here, which served as a partial inspiration for the film. Stone tells him to shut the hell up and appreciate the million dollars that he gets to keep because Stone got him through this. When you get back to the States with your million bucks, you're going to thank my ass I got you through this. You got me through this? You got me through this? That is the biggest laugh I had in this whole damn trip. Stone and Dan make it to the waterfall and are ecstatic to find Tony, Rockney, and Ollie here. They all celebrate together and are particularly pleased to learn that they still have most of the money minus Rockney's share, I think. Rockney notices Stone's bullet wound and asks what they've been through. Ollie finally introduces herself here at the waterfall. This is the first time she's saying her name in the movie. 
uh, to Stone and Dan. Dan collapses into the river with a primal grunt. Is he okay? No. We cut back to Don Mariano and his men. He hops off his horse and sits down in the river, defeated. His men try to convince him that he still has his life to appreciate. Hueso notices something in the river, not clear what, and he retrieves it from the water and then eats it. It's. I think it's Stone's gum. Oh, oh is that what it was? Yeah. yeah. Did we see him spit it out? He, oh, he I did, do remember yeah. him spitting. I thought he spit, but he spit his gum out. Yeah. Okay, that makes but more sense. Does it? <laughs> Well, it, it it's it's like I mean, it makes more sense than eating a rock, I suppose. But like, why are you eating somebody's well, spat out gum? Because it it means they're close. He put it in his mouth to see how soft it was. If this is actual, like, if there's any flavor left, yeah, then you can tell how far they are from the flavor the from the a- flavor quotient. The ABC gum. It's yeah. Like, which which you know which meal are we in? Have we yeah. gotten to the blueberry pie yet? Mm. Yeah, that's right. Okay. What's for dessert, baby? <laughs> crossing the river he is pursued by an enormous fucking snake uh this looks completely real and gets way closer to the actor than i expected it to i don't even know if this was like planned because when the actor notices it he kind of freaks out and jumps up out of the water but uh it's pretty cool it's not one of those bullshit roadkill snakes from zat don mariano lays flat on his back in the water the henchman that escaped the snake moves ahead of the group a little bit and finds our protagonists at the waterfall he aims a gun and fires on dan in the water hitting him in the chest that ought to help him get over his guilt tony fires back with another automatic weapon while stone dives in the water to collect his wounded friend dan when he arrives at the shootout don mariano slaps his henchman around and then tries to negotiate a truce stepping out in the open to offer himself as a gesture of goodwill don mariano is desperate now because that money could be used to feed the poor people in his region and instead it's going to four guys who just didn't want to work full-time jobs stone asks don mariano how much of their purse he thinks he needs and he suggests they split it 50 50. while stone continues the negotiations the rest of his friends work their way up through the waterfall and around to behind don mariano stone offers mariano a quarter of the money which is still a full million dollars but mariano rejects the offer without any leverage and again suggests that they split the pot 50 50 since he has so many mouths to feed and they are but four men stone asks how he knows he can trust mariano and he tells stone that they're partners you know it is my philosophy that the devil loads the guns and only assholes shoot them right on cue ollie opens fire from behind don mariano's group and makes the most terrifying face while she takes out one of his men i think it was supposed to look like she didn't expect the gun's firepower Mm -hmm. but it could also be interpreted as her just going completely fucking insane and turning on everyone mariano's men start firing back as stone dives into the water to escape people stand above stone and fire down into the water until tony starts shooting at them and then one of them hits tony in the shoulder and he falls into the water stone dives in after tony but can't find him because the water is pretty murky here eventually we see tony surface gripping his own wound and hiding behind a small rock i feel like this shot shouldn't have happened yeah we shouldn't have seen him come back up out of the water Mm -hmm. the rest of the team limp toward the total plane on the runway when stone catches up to them they ask where tony went where's tony suddenly they're taking fire again from mariano's men and continue toward the plane 
Stone and Rockney lay down cover fire as they rise up and finish the run. Mariano makes one final plea to split the money and they refuse. Stone notices a pair of henchmen circling around the plane and fires on them, killing one and then the other. At the last minute, two jeeps roll up and start taking out the last of Mariano's men. It's Serrano and the local army. Stone and his people have done most of the work taking out the revolutionaries for him, and there's hardly any resistance left to kill. Serrano's soldiers open fire on the plane, as Stone and company hide behind it, and eventually start firing back. Everyone pauses when they hear a functional plane approaching. The pilot pops a cassette tape into the deck, and the Rolling Stones' I Can't Get No Satisfaction begins to play. I guess it's just called Satisfaction. I don't know. There's parentheses yeah. in the title. I feel like they spent a large chunk of the budget on this song. I have to assume so, yeah. I mean, they also have a lot of Oscar winners in the cast. Uh, pretty impressive. The pilot holds up an Uzi and shouts, His co-pilot is hanging out of the side of the plane with a massive machine gun and fires on Serrano's jeeps until the men abandon them and scamper off into the wilderness. The pilot then drops a grenade out of the window to finish them off. Good thing these pilots are so good at reading the context of the situation because they yeah. could have been allies that they just bombed without warning. When the functional plane touches down, Stone and his team race to it as their dwindling enemies continue firing on the plane. Once they're all inside, they try to take off, but the pilot notices a wounded man on the runway ahead of them. It's Tony. He survived, and he made it all the way back up to this hill. Yeah. Rockney runs out to collect him, and again, the plane speeds up for takeoff when one last time, Rockney shouts for the plane to slow down because the Bashan is speeding down the runway after the plane, and Rockney leans out the door to snatch the dog up, meaning they've managed to escape the country with... Almost all of the money, and every member of the team, including the dog, makes it home safe. Well. Plus one person. <laughs> no, I mean, makes it home safe is questionable. No, they're all fine. <laughs> the plane takes off for America, and alone on the runway, Mariano complains to the last member of his squad that these gringos didn't even need the money. They don't even need them. They've got everything. They've got houses, cars, airplanes. And women, beautiful, fond women. No sea malo, papacito, hombre. Tenos un cachito. You know what bothers me the most? I'm a general. They're not even professionals. And we freeze frame for the credits. Well, not, not just for that yeah so uh he first of all like i feel like this is a very kind of impassioned speech yeah i about I, ordinarily this. i would think they would just cut it with the plane flying away yeah mm -hmm. um but he gives this speech and just as he's walking away you start to hear the plane engine sputtering right and that draws his attention like oh that plane's going down and i'm gonna get another crack at that money oh is that what that was supposed to imply i, I think that that's what that's supposed to imply that was real subtle. I missed that. Yeah. I mean, I definitely heard what you're talking about. There was like a, a, a grinding sound. Yeah. Include grinding sound here. But I feel like the the point of that moment was just Anthony Quinn is in this movie. Yeah. And he's big, so we should give him the last line of the film. And so they wrote this moment for him. But I almost feel like they put too much effort into it. And we don't really know for a fact that he wouldn't have shared that money with the poor people of his mm -hmm. region. And it feels like, oh, yeah, why did those guys deserve the money more than this guy? 
this guy was trying to overthrow a dictator yeah, and a corrupt government by the end of this movie i don't know who i'm supposed to like and want to succeed i and, definitely don't like these four guys right and and he was definitely trying to negotiate a truce and was out in the open and telling his men to stop firing on them when suddenly they were getting shot at yeah like i thought that they were going to have like a serious like Moment. agreement with each other when suddenly ollie is firing on them and it's not like anybody's like trying to stop her like whoa 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 hold on they're just like oh great yeah. we have the advantage again you know what movie did this better is three kings oh yeah 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 like it, it's very similar where uh wow yeah it's a lot like three kings actually yeah it, it's you know they're not great guys but you do want them to succeed and they make help along the way that they have to to make a decision with with this money and and they spoiler if you haven't seen three kings yeah but ultimately they choose to do the right thing with the money yeah which um, these guys did not choose yeah exactly <laughs> i still enjoyed it though um even if i don't necessarily care for the guys i think um there's there's funny dialogue here there's funny like interpersonal moments with the characters um i don't think the plot is super interesting and um we we obviously agree that the ending is um disappointing if we're supposed to sympathize with these characters but um i still thought it it moves along pretty quick and i like the jailbreak i like the you know cleavon getting stuck in drag for a third of the movie and um all this other stuff that's just kind of funny set pieces i think that it was it was okay. There were there were moments that I liked, and there were, I was engaged the whole time. Yeah, you know, like I, I I didn't have a hard time paying attention to it, but it wasn't spectacular. And it's a great cast. It it's surprisingly great cast. Like, yeah. why are all these people in there, and why didn't Ernest Borgnine come back? Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I could have used more Clint. Yeah, I this movie didn't do anything for me. I I, I see all I see both of your guys' points, and I and I don't disagree with them, but. I, I really just don't like these guys at the end of the day. Yeah. I, I don't I don't like them. Um I I don't I don't feel bad when they get shot. Like I don't I didn't go, oh no, he's been shot. I was like, it's like oh yeah, out. you went to another country yeah. to steal money. Who fucking cares? Yeah. Um I feel like the setup is is very not confusing, but just like convoluted. Yeah, it's like I have the layout, the combination, contacts to get airplanes in and in. I know he's supposed to be like an international photographer, yeah. but uh, just the, where the, did all this come from? Yeah. He has all of this Intel. He has the guy from thief that just gives him like a map to the safe and yeah. all the information he needs to get inside. Uh, and I get it. It's like, Oh, you know, like, Oh, he had someone close and they killed his brother. It's like, okay, that's still, still like, how did he get this information to you? And why, why did he yeah. get the Is a part of this cut for him? Uh, so and and I agree with Jesse when you said uh, we don't get to know these characters enough. Yeah, like we 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 don't get enough, and I we needed to have that moment of them kind of going a, a bit through their daily life, uh, maybe getting fired. Like one of them's getting fired, one of them he's with his wife, and she says she's pregnant. You know, like it could literally be as quick as that montage in Three Kings, where they're like, "Oh, we could all go back to what we were doing before yeah. the war," and it shows like Ice Cube is like bagging groceries, and Spike Jones is just firing a weapon at a bunch of stuffed animals tied yeah. to the top of a car in a junkyard. Yeah, but you also see that they're they're in the military and they're 
they're just doing right. that you you get a sense of very quick sense of who they are as people and yeah. i and i didn't get that from any of these guys because because all of a sudden cleavon little has like this plan we'll beat it out of him it's like wait who are you who are you yeah exactly like is this what is your experience in beating people yeah because he and stone like have the same idea and it's like do you know stone that well i don't i don't get even how you guys know each other yeah they're they're playing stone like he's like a a former like secret agent Mm -hmm. like uh almost like taken style yeah. person where he's like a problem solver it's like no he's literally a documentarian and i think that that would have been a more interesting movie they they want to get at this money and so they hire a guy who is a professional who has to so take it's these... like my bodyguard well, but in columbia yeah kind of like but but more like you know he's got to take these unprofessional guys who are willing to risk risk their lives yeah uh to get at this money and he does need support he can't get the money on his own and he can't find someone else to do it, so he's got like these three schmoes to go with him. Yeah. Um, at least they're motivated. Yeah. You know. Uh, but I don't know. Like, yeah, I I didn't like this movie. <laughs> it might have been fun if they'd have taken it even further in that direction, like made it like an office space situation where they were completely incapable of doing it, and they like on paper everything made sense, but when they got there, they just had no idea what they were doing, mm. and they make all these minor screw ups yeah. that just. And then you make it more into a comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is not a mundane detail, Michael. <laughs> I always screw up one little detail. Oh, really, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give it a thumbs down. I am too. It was okay, but I'm never going to tell anybody to watch this movie. Yeah. I This is not worth your time. Of Stuart Raffles movies, there's more important stuff to watch. Um. But I was impressed because for a movie I'd never heard of, with this cast um, and with Stuart Raffle at the helm, I assumed that someone would have told me about this movie already. And then when I saw it, I was like, okay, I see why no one said anything to me about this movie. But it's still better than I expected it to be. Because usually when there's a dark movie like that that I know yeah. nothing about, it's yeah. for extremely good reason. And this was mediocre. It was It's better than some other actioners that we've done this year. Um and it really has legitimately funny moments in it um, that I appreciated. Like when we fuck up knocking a guy out so we have to hit him a second time. Yeah. Or we fart in somebody's face in the middle of a very serious scene. Yeah. Or then accidentally shoot a child instead of farting on the child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, yeah. but again, that's why like Romancing the Stone I feel does the comedy because Three Kings is not a comedy. It has it has levity. it is it is a hundred percent a comedy. <laughs> uh, I th- I think Three Kings is a comedy. David oh. O. Russell directs comedies. Oh man, that's a very upsetting comedy. It's dark. Um, but Romancing the Stone is definitely a comedy. Yeah, like people are shooting at each other, but no one's dying. Yeah, like the, I don't think anyone dies until the very end. Uh, when when the general dies in in uh, *Romancing the Stone*, spoiler yeah. alerts for *Romancing the Stone*. Uh, and it keeps everything really light. Like they're in danger, but I'm never worried that they're going to die, and I'm really never worried that they're going to kill somebody. It, when 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 James Brolin just unloads his gun at that guy who's on the ground. Yeah. Like, like, I was like really upset by that, and then when Bruce Davison just Blah, 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 just seeing all these people fall yeah it's like jesus like this isn't 
funny. And it's also brutal gunshots too. It's not like pop, 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 pop. It's like yeah. pow gunshots every time. It's like one of those loud, like hurts your ears pow. And it's like mm-hmm. really, you know, it's it, it has a lot of volume on the track so that it's drowning out all the other action that's happening. But uh, yeah, there's lots of people who you, we were just joking around with a second ago dying suddenly. Yeah, because Anthony Quinn had like, 20 to 30 people in his group yeah. they're all dead at the end he has a woman that's yeah. following him around and i almost feel like it would have made sense for her to just walk away from him because it's mm-hmm. like okay well you, you you're not providing for me anymore there's literally nobody here um letterbox what are we thinking it's three thumbs down i guess yes uh i have it at 38 out of 53 it is above back roads and below line of the desert I have it at 41, uh, putting it below Hard Country, but above Harry's War. You liked Hard Country more than this? Yeah. Huh. S- slightly. <laughs> Less children die in Hard Country. <laughs> yeah, you, you put it under Hard Country, though. Correct. <laughs> uh, I have it in 34th place, which is just under Sphinx. And just above Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen. But that's way above even Ruckus, let alone Hard Country. But Ruckus was better than this. Ruckus was not better than this. Ruckus was better than this. No, the cast power of this movie is better than Ruckus. This is in the vein of Ruckus. I would say Ruckus is the closest thing to this that we've covered so yeah, far. Yeah, but Ruckus I found more amusing than this. Mm-hmm. And I found this more amusing. I don't remember any farts in Ruckus. <laughs> I have to rewatch it now. Our writer-director here was Stuart Raffle. After this, he goes on to direct some real magic for the 80s, mm-hmm. including Ice Pirates, The Philadelphia Experiment, Mac and Me, and then in the 90s, Mannequin 2 on the Move, and Tammy and the T-Rex. The Spanish dialogue was written by Fernando Celis. This is his only writing credit. He has mostly stunt work. He played one of the bandits in this film. And he's also credited as Stuart Raffle's personal assistant. But I thought that was cool that he got a writing credit out of it. Well, yeah, because they were probably like, uh, how do no you say idea. this? Yeah. Uh, how do you say that? Or he's just like, hey, can you tell them to say something along these lines? And then yeah. the guy just told them what to say. The music here was from Mark Snow. He did the music for Smallville, Blue Bloods, One Tree Hill, Millennium, Birds of Prey. But most famously, he composed the theme for X-Files yeah. Yeah. and consequently The Lone Gunman. The cinematographer was Alex Phillips Jr. We've covered his work on Cabo Blanco and Fade to Black. We'll also cover it on Demonoid, which gets a minisode this season. He's back later for Surf 2, King Solomon's Mines, and Born in East L.A. Editor Tom Walls was the editor of Roadie last season. He's back for Ice Pirates, Bachelor Party, Mac and Me, and Surf Ninjas. James Brolin was Stone. He was John Blaine in Westworld. He showed up as Dr. Kylie in 170 episodes of Marcus Welby, M.D., before appearing in Capricorn 1 and the Amityville Horror in the late 70s. We reviewed his work last year in Night of the Juggler, and then he played Peter McDermott in 115 episodes of Hotel, which I've never heard of. He played (laughs) Pee-wee in the film Within a Film in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. He's also famously the father of Thanos actor Josh Brolin. Anthony Quinn played Mariano. He has two Oscars for Supporting Actor from Lust for Life and Viva Zapata. In 56, he's Quasimodo in Hunchback of Notre Dame. He's Auda Abu Tayi in Lawrence of Arabia. He's in Zorba the Greek, The Message. He's Vivaldi in Last Action Hero. We just covered his appearance as Omar Mukhtar in Lion of the Desert, 
And I always make fun of his appearance in Ghosts Can't Do It. So I'm going to do that again. Because I can do it. Whoa. Make fun of him, that is. Oh. <laughs> thought you meant have sex with ghosts. I think ghosts can have sex with ghosts. What Are they can't do is have sex with people. Wait, I'm confused. What can you and can't you do? <laughs> I don't know. Lindsay Wagner played Ollie. She was Jamie Summers in The Six Million Dollar Man and eventually her own spinoff, The Bionic Woman. We just had her as Stallone's ex, Irene, in Nighthawks, who he doubles for late in the film. <laughs> and you know what today is, as in June 22nd? What is today, as in June 22nd? The, the day that we are recording this is Lindsay Wagner's birthday. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, happy birthday, Lindsay Wagner. James Coburn played Serrano. He won an Oscar for Supporting Actor in 99 for something called Affliction. I do not remember a movie called Affliction in 99. He worked with Anthony Quinn previously in A High Wing in Jamaica in 65. He appears in The Great Escape, Magnificent Seven, Charade. He was Flint in Our Man Flint and In Like Flint, the first of which actually featured Brolin in an uncredited role as a technician. He's in Payback. He was Thunder Jack, father of Cuba Gooding Jr. in Snow Dogs. And so far we've covered his work in Baltimore Bullet and Loving Couples last year. Oh man, he's in so many great things. Yeah. I was just going to bring up his character of Loot and Plunder from Captain Planet. <laughs> it's a bunch of episodes too, right? Yeah. Ernest Borgnine played Clint. He has a Best Actor Oscar for Marty in 55. This was his third and final collaboration with Anthony Quinn after Barabbas in 61 and Jesus of Nazareth in 77. He was McHale in McHale's Navy. He came back to play Cobra in the film Reboot. He's in The Wild Bunch, Willard, The Poseidon Adventure, The Black Hole. We saw him last year in When Time Ran Out as the sergeant tailing Red Button's criminal character. And Borgnine is back later this season as Isaiah Schmidt in deadly blessing he's also santini on airwolf he voices carface in all dogs go to heaven 2 and he's the voice of mermaid man on spongebob squarepants but i will always remember him as the doorman manny from the single guy hmm. whenever i think of the single guy i think of ernest borgnine playing the doorman on that show but i also always think of um there was a bit i can't remember if it was the oscars or the mtv movie awards where they were showing foley artists that were just super shitty at their jobs and <laughs> okay. uh i think it was like ben stiller and somebody else yeah and they were just doing just way over producing the sound or just adding yeah. sound effects where there wasn't anything and they were doing scenes from weekend at bernie's mm -hmm. and uh in part of it they were like improvising a song for the movie and they're like the guy from the single guy and the guy that was in the <laughs> like just like making up lyrics to the songs but just citing other credits from the characters that were in the movie um but for some reason i always think of that i i think i've looked for it and i haven't been able to find it but if i can find it i'll include a bit of their song here bruce davison played dan he was nominated for best supporting actor in longtime companion in 1991 he has almost 300 acting credits on all kinds of stuff but the first thing that comes to mind for me will always be senator kelly the guy who Magneto transforms into a mutant against his will that melts on the beach. Yeah, I was always really upset about that plot line not following through. That he doesn't reincorporate into a person? Well, yeah, because cause Magneto teases. He says, are you sure you saw what you thought you saw? I was like, what does that mean? Like, It's just a mind fuck. That's his thing. Like, but Because uh, I, I really wanted that to always come around. But yeah. I do like that mystique assumes his identity right so technically bruce davison plays mystique yeah. in x-men 2 
it, it, sorry, I know this is a weird segue, but it reminds me of Jonathan Price in the G.I. Joe movies. <laughs> right, where, where he's the president. Yeah, John, Jonathan Price is the president, but at the end of the movie, Arnold Vosloo has gotten surgery to look like him and assumes his place, but they never discover it. So in the part two, he's still the president. Yeah. If Arnold Vosloo, like, if the technology existed to make Arnold Vosloo look exactly like Jonathan Price, why wouldn't he already? Yeah. he Jonathan Price gave the performance of a lifetime in that second gi joe movie he's like i get it this is this is garbage and i'm 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 having a time of my life i never saw the second one i think i have a credit in it because i I think that was one of the ones that we did the 3d post conversion on it's it's really entertaining because it's so stupid because all the vehicles are based on the toys (laughs) so they don't make any sense that's awesome uh also london gets effing destroyed i'm hoping based on the toys means that there's literally like seams where the molds came together on the plastic no uh, just just in the unrealistic and pointless designs that's awesome all right i'll check it out you talked me into it cleavon little played rockney he's probably best known as bart from blazing saddles we covered him last as super soul in vanishing point and richard and i have covered his appearances as frank colton in various episodes of MacGyver. He also worked with Anthony Quinn in a film called The Salamander, released the same year, 1981, in the UK, but it didn't get to America until 83. So that's when we'll cover Anthony Quinn and Cleavon Little again for The Salamander. Chick Venera played Tony. I didn't recognize a lot of his credits, but he's the voice of Pesto, the Joe Pesci-esque Goodfeather <laughs> on the Animaniacs. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's Tony. You're saying I'm an overdone piece of meat? Is that what you're saying? What am I, a plate of dry steak butt meat here to amuse you? No, I didn't say that. I, I just said you're tough. I am tough? Yeah. I'm tough. <laughs> yeah, you're tough. That's it! <laughs> David Young played the pilot. He's back in SOB later this season, and then Bill the Bouncer in Hellraiser 3. Richard Young is the other pilot who plays Fedora in Indiana Jones on the Last Crusade. That's the one who Indiana Jones gets the Fedora from at the beginning of the film, the one who tries oh, to steal the crucifix yeah, yeah, on the yeah. boat. Stephanie Faulkner played Rockney's girlfriend. She's Sarah Baker in Virus, which we covered with a minisode this year. Anna DeSade played Serrano's woman. She's a prostitute in The Holy Mountain. Eduardo Noriega played a general. He's Don Francisco in Zorro the Gay Blade later this season, and he's Senator jesus braunschweiger in the in-laws alvaro carcano played the cellmate and he's a beggar in Yellowbeard. i think he's one of the italian cellmates yes um, before the wall gets torn out paco moreta plays the other cellmate he was flock in caveman which i think is the one that gets dragged away by his foot at the beginning of the film uh he's also ramirez in zorro the gay blade later this season he's an undertaker in the mask of zorro uh, the newer one, the 99, or I'm trying to remember when Mask of Zorro came out, the Banderas one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's an undertaker in The Mask of Zorro, and he's a hotel clerk in Romancing the Stone. There's so many characters over the course of these credits that their their only common credits were Romancing the Stone, uh, Zorro the Gay Blade, Caveman, or um, Yellowbeard. There was a couple, they, they, and they're all movies that shot in Mexico. Right, right, right. Oh, Yellowbeard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sergio Calderon played Hueso. That's the guy who farts in James Brolin's face. Uh, he was Captain Valenueva in Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. He's the lead Mayan in The Ruins. 
He's a bartender in Pure Luck, which also shot largely in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And there was a bunch of credits from that. Uh, he's Gustavo in Little Fockers, but I recognized him instantly as Jose from the opening scene of the first Men in Black, who turns out to be an alien in a Mexican costume. Uh-huh. But the guy with the long black hair. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and he is pretending to be mexican but doesn't know a word of spanish so when tommy lee jones is just insulting him in spanish he's just like smiling Uh and nodding i also love that scene just because it's not like he's wearing a mask he's literally tucked underneath the jacket holding a rod with a fake head yeah and he just has like a poncho over him yeah yeah zochitl del rosario played the prostitute she was a cave woman in caveman i don't know which one but she was one of them Carlos Romano played one of the pool players in that scene. He was Miguel in Cabo Blanco earlier this season. He's a pilot in the Octagon from the same distributor. And he later shows up as a priest in Yellowbeard. Rodolfo de Alexandre played Skinny Man. And he shows up way later as Omar in Once Upon a Time in Mexico. I think that's everything for High Risk. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, subscribe to us there. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Just a Gigolo which IMDb describes like so. After World War I, a war hero returns to Berlin to find that there's no place for him. He has no skills other than what he learned in the army and can only find menial, low-paying jobs. He decides to become a gigolo to lonely, rich women. We leave you now with the trailer for Just a Gigolo. Is this trench 17A154? Yes. Lieutenant von Pischkowski reporting for duty, sir. Go put the soup on sheets. Would you like to come down here? Is it absolutely necessary? It is customary. Welcome to the front, Lieutenant. Yes, very smart, I'm sure. New boots. What do you expect to find here, Lieutenant? Fame and glory, of course. I'm a Prussian. Military background. My father was a colonel. Heroism is my destiny. Is it? Is it? Very good.
visit you. Yeah. Comets like you always visit the stars every couple of years. I saw your film two and a half times. This is my wedding and you're my present. And besides, now I can afford you. Can you? Yes. I'm very expensive. That ought to do for a couple of hours. Good evening, Father. What are you looking at me like that for? You know, it's easy for you to talk. I mean, you had it made. Everything you could ever have hoped for. War, famine, pestilence. You had it all. I mean, it really wasn't difficult to be somebody under those conditions. I don't know why, but people don't seem to want that kind of thing anymore. All they think about is forgetting. And most of them have already forgotten what it was they were supposed to forget anyway. And the only thing about the past that they do remember is that there was something back there that they weren't supposed to remember. I mean, it really doesn't matter whether they remember it or not, because they've forgotten it anyway. You see what I mean? Meanwhile, I'm at the Eden. I know what you're going to say. It's not really the sort of career that you can walk down the street and brag about. Being a gigolo, I mean. But most of the people that I pass in the street, they don't care anyway. They don't know the difference, and if they did care, they'd start a war, and I'd be back in action. You see, I have got it all sorted out. You will be proud of me, Father.